We are now three months into the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, with more than 110,000 Americans dead from a novel coronavirus that scientists are still researching. And it has been more than two weeks since a Minneapolis police officer held his knee on an unarmed man's neck, killing him in the process. I know that recent events have overshadowed the pandemic, but it is still very much with us. On Tuesday, Governor Ralph Northam had news about how schools may open in the fall, provided they can demonstrate a plan to keep students apart. Schools will open for all students next year, but as the governor said, instruction will look different. Details are coming up in this program. I'm Sean Tubbs, and this is the Charlottesville Quarantine Report for June 10th, 2020. We'll also hear from Dr. Denise Bonds of the Thomas Jefferson Health District. So there's really no additional risk in a high-density housing situation. Let's get started with some information. The death toll in Virginia for COVID-19 has now increased to 1,514, according to numbers released by the Virginia Department of Health this morning. Another 439 new cases were reported, and the percentage rate for positive tests across the state is now at 9%. That's down from 11% a week ago. The City of Charlottesville's Economic Development Authority will give the operators of the Charlottesville Pavilion a one-year break on making payments for loans associated with the structure. At their meeting on Tuesday, the EDA was told that the pavilion expects to be closed all season and there will be no revenues. Beginning this Saturday, the Charlottesville City Market to Go will be moving from Penn Park to Darden Tow Park for the rest of the summer. In a release, Parks and Recreation officials said the reimagined market needs more space to operate and because some outdoor activities at Penn Park are beginning to resume. For more information, visit the release in the show notes. Beer Run has opened to the public again after a temporary closure after an employee tested positive for COVID-19 last week. Testing on all of Beer Run's other workers were conducted by Seminole Trail MedExpress and no one else showed signs of infection. Beer Run is crediting adherence to physical distancing and facial covering use, as well as sanitation, for why they've been able to report no new cases. However, Dooners in Ivy announced on Facebook on Tuesday that they will shut down for two months after an employee tested positive. In his briefing on Tuesday, June 9th, Northam had new information about when schools and colleges might reopen in Virginia. He gave credit to those who have been following protocol. We're able to do what we're doing because of you as Virginians uh, that have listened to our guidelines, that have cooperated. And while I know many of us have made sacrifices uh, together, uh, all of you have been part of the solution. With unemployment back to levels not seen since the 1930s, many Virginians are struggling to pay rent. This week, Northam announced that the moratorium on evictions will continue through the end of the month. Soon there will be a rent relief package announced that will be paid for through federal funding. For his first two briefings this month, Northam has used his time to address the demonstrations related to the killing of George Floyd and to address nights of protests in Richmond. Attention went back to COVID-19 at the June 9th press conference. I know that recent events have overshadowed the pandemic but it is still very much with us. That said, our health metrics are looking positive. The percent of positive tests over the past 14 days is trending downward, and statewide it's about 10% right now. 
Hospitalizations for COVID-19 are down. There are fewer shortages of PPE, and the number of tests processed is at the level required to be in phase two of the Forward Virginia reopening plan. We continue to increase our testing capacity, and we are moving toward our goal of hiring contact tracers. For July, we're aiming for 15 contact tracers for every 100,000 people, 1,200. Right now, we have a total of 872 people statewide on our contact tracing team. That's a combination of new hires and existing VDH staff and volunteers. Three months in, and the Virginia Department of Health is still working out the kinks and continues to acknowledge their missteps. On Tuesday, Virginia Health Commissioner Dr. Norm Oliver had this explanation for why we're going to see testing numbers spike in the coming days. Um, I need to uh, uh, notify you all that we have a large lab in central Virginia that has not been on electronic lab reporting with us, uh, and there's been a large backlog of uh, manual uh, lab reports from that lab. Um, we have, uh, over the last couple of weeks, arranged for them to uh, now report uh, electronically. So over the next uh, couple of days, you will see a big jump in the number of tests that will be the result of these thousands of labs being uh, put into our data uh, um, base. Northern Virginia and Richmond will enter phase two on Friday, joining the rest of the state with more open rules. But the main thrust of the briefing on Tuesday was what will happen with public schools this summer and into the fall. Let's hear some of the details. I know that parents are very interested in our plans for how to safely return children to our classrooms. As you recall, on March the 23rd, I closed all Virginia schools for the remainder of the academic year. Virginia was one of the first states to take this step. I believe that these closures have helped mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in our communities over the last few months. Since that time, our schools have risen to the occasion and found ways to continue providing instruction, keep students engaged in learning from afar, continue serving meals for children who otherwise would have gone hungry, and support students and families through an immensely challenging time. When we moved all of our schools to remote learning, we were clear that that shutdown would extend for the remainder of the school year. This school year is over. This podcast is being produced within sight of one school, and as a quick aside, the bell is still ringing and has been for the last three months. That technicality aside, Preparations are underway for how classrooms might open up again in the fall, and at what level. In a year of sudden change, it's time to be ready for more. On Tuesday, Northam rolled out a plan to open up schools in a series of phases. Beginning this summer, if school systems can demonstrate they have procedures in place to keep students apart. Listen to the details a few times if you have to, because things are going to be different. These phases will allow in-person instruction but slowly. We'll start with small groups and we'll allow each school division the flexibility that it needs to respond to the needs of its own locality. I want to be clear that these phases provide our schools with options for consideration, not mandates to open their buildings for summer school. 
Rather, this phased approach provides some in-person instructional opportunities for divisions to consider throughout the summer and will help divisions begin planning for the 2021 school year. What this looks like on the ground is that to start with, most instruction is still virtual. In phase two, which most schools can enter right now, schools may offer in-person instruction for preschool through third graders and English language learners. They can also provide in-person instruction for students with disabilities. It also means school-based summer camps may operate with some restrictions. For the future, phase three will allow schools to shift to in-person instruction for all students. But they will need to put physical distancing measures in place. For example, schools may have to stagger schedules or adopt class schedules that blend in-person and remote learning. We'll expect schools to have six feet between desks and workstations. There will be restrictions on mixing groups of students. Schools will have to stagger the use of communal spaces, such as cafeterias, or close them. There should be remote learning and telework options for high-risk students and staff. There will be daily health screenings and wearing of face coverings by staff where physical distancing cannot be maintained. While our Executive Order 63 includes exceptions for face coverings in school settings, we will encourage students to wear face coverings as well, especially our older students. Schools must submit plans to the Virginia Department of Education outlining how they'll comply with these guidelines before entering phase two or phase three. This is something I think we should all be talking about or thinking about whether or not we have children in the school systems. I'm not an educator, but I'd like to learn more about how we teach ourselves. I'm producing this podcast because there are things I think you really should know. In fact, that's a lot of what my career has been. We're in a time where there is a need to rethink how so many things work, and the pandemic could change local education, perhaps for the better. There are a lot of opportunities here, and this summer I'm hoping to speak with teachers and others about education. And I'd like to hear from you. If you have comments you'd like to share, or if you'd like to get the conversation going with something you know, get in touch with me. You can drop me a line to wordcast at gmail.com. But for now, let's get back to the June 9th press conference. This pandemic is happening while the nation is wrestling with something more insidious than COVID-19. Virginia's superintendent of schools, James Lane, made this comment on Tuesday. We are having overdue and necessary but difficult conversations about systemic and historic racism and its continuing presence in American 2020. Education is a system with its own racist history and present day challenges. And as the agency responsible for schools, we remain committed to tackling these conversations and necessary policy changes to ensure that the color of a student's skin doesn't dictate the education opportunity that they have access to. We must eliminate achievement and opportunity gaps. We must have culturally relevant standards and practices. And I am committed to eradicating racism from our schools and communities. But for this summer, a lot of Lane's attention will be on getting the details right for the reopening of Virginia's public schools. Schools will open for all students next year, but as the governor said, instruction will look different. Virginia schools are required to deliver new instruction to students for the 2020-2021 academic year, and some of that will happen in person, and some of that will happen via remote learning. 
Lane said that phase two of the school's reopening can happen now because the Commonwealth is in phase two of the Forward Virginia plan as well. We still don't know too much about phase three, but that's why we need to keep paying attention. But here's what phase three will look like for public and private schools whenever it happens. In phase three, all students may begin to receive in-person instruction, but it must be accommodated within strict social distancing measures. So this will likely require staggered schedules and innovative approaches to the way that students come to our buildings. And we are all looking forward to the day that we're on beyond phase three, resuming to a new normal and, and having all of our students in buildings every day. We don't know when beyond phase three would begin, but one thing to remember is that in phase two, gatherings are limited to 50 people or less. Even in phase three, it will be likely that cafeterias and other large communal spaces in our schools will be closed to limit the spread of COVID-19. This year, there have been no little league games, no youth soccer, and so on. That may be changing as the summer continues into the fall. Clark Mercer, the governor's chief of staff, has been fielding questions from all across Virginia about when sports might come back. This is a long cut, but let's hear what he has to say. There's a lot of sports out there, and every day when you think you kind of have everything figured out, someone calls with a new situation you haven't thought of. So I wanted to go through our overarching guidelines for youth sports in, in phase two, and um, I, I will start by saying it's applying common sense, incidental versus accidental contact and shared equipment. That's really what we need to be thinking about when our kids are back out. Uh, playing sports. Uh, incidental contact is obviously accidental contact, temporary contact that you don't plan on in a sport. And we understand you can't play sports, a lot of them, without having incidental contact. Intentional contact, there's some sports you just can't play without intentionally uh, coming across someone else and having sustained contact. So that's kind of a guiding post for what we're going to talk about. Also, shared equipment. Uh, we need to minimize and 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 prohibit the use of shared equipment in phase two. Um, but we will have our kids out playing sports. And I'll give a couple examples of incidental contact versus intentional. Uh, karate classes. Can my, my child go back to having indoor karate classes? Yes. Can your child spar with another child and have intentional contact in those classes? No. We've had folks that run ice skating arenas. Can ice skating uh, start again? Yes. Can we have ice dancing in the ice skating arenas? Uh, no. Uh, baseball. Uh, when I was growing up, we all shared a helmet and we all shared, shared baseball bats. That's not a uh, common protocol now. You have your own bat, you have your own helmet. There's not shared equipment in baseball. Certainly there is some incidental contact that we recognize. Uh, football. High school football. Folks should be training right now, getting ready. I don't know what will happen with the high school season down the road, but certainly quarterbacks can be thrown to receivers. Receivers are wearing gloves. That's kind of common sense. We're not doing tackle football in the middle of the summer. Uh, anyway, there's certainly some weight training, not using shared equipment, some drills that linemen can do that will accommodate the phase two uh, guidelines. Uh, soccer, I coached high school soccer for six years. Uh, there's ways to train uh, and structure your practices without having intentional contact. With shared equipment with soccer, it's a very easy to structure a practice to avoid, for example, having throw-ins, right? You can restart from the ground. Uh, obviously, in competitive soccer, once we get going with that, uh, you can't do that, but certainly for most of the training that we do across the Commonwealth, you don't have to, to have everyone uh, picking up the ball and throwing it, throwing it in. So that's kind of applying some of the, the common sense uh, guidelines. In terms of capacity on our, our fields, indoor and outdoor, indoor is going to be less capacity. It's 30% for an indoor field or 50 people, whichever is the lesser amount, and that's per field. So some of our sports complexes that are 
large and have a baseball diamond, a volleyball uh, court, and a soccer field. It's it's per each each room should have its own capacity limit, and you'll know how to, to structure that. Outdoors, it's 50% uh, capacity or 50 people, whichever is less for youth sports. And this is, I think, I was on the phone a couple days ago with a group of folks that coach baseball around the Commonwealth. For youth sports, we need our parents to be able to come, drop our kids off, and watch and for the children that they're overseeing. So it's, uh, there's no limit or capacity for the youth sports for spectators, given that their parents are guardians, either watching their children or taking care of their children uh, at the game. And kind of common sense again, baseball, we've got the diamond, two dugouts, teams separated and fans on either side, down the first and third baseline, watching from the outfield, social distancing, soccer, lacrosse, those sorts of things you have fans, typically two teams on either sideline, again, uh, social distancing, leaving some space in between spectators with a high likelihood, at least in my household, that my son or daughter comes running over for more orange slices or to take a timeout in the middle of the game and is hot and sweaty and perspiring. And obviously the 10 feet of distance that we're trying to maintain in fitness classes, our gyms, athletics, recognizes that when you are exercising, those air particles um, move a little bit quicker and there's more likelihood of spread. So that's the, the reason for 10 feet. You've been listening to excerpts from a press briefing from June 9th, 2020. We'll have more of these in the near future. And if you have a story to tell about not participating in youth sports or sports this year and how much you might be looking forward to it and what your concerns are, drop me a line to wordcast at gmail.com. This is the Charlottesville Quarantine Report, and we'll be back after this short break. The Charlottesville Planning Commission met for the first time in three months on June 9, 2020, and held their first virtual meeting. Before they got into the details of a rezoning application, they got an update from Dr. Denise Bonds. She's the director of the Thomas Jefferson Health District. Dr. Bonds first appeared on this program in the first week, three months ago, when she gave a briefing to the Albemarle Board of Supervisors. But let's catch up with her again. So just as background, um, and I'm sure most of you are aware, COVID-19 is caused by an RNA virus. It's transmitted from person to person by aerosolized droplets. That is, when we talk or cough or speak or exercise, um, we expel droplets uh, out. And if we're infected with COVID-19, those droplets um, can carry the virus. Dr. Bonds was invited to talk to the Planning Commission to address concerns of residential density. There have been emails to the city of Charlottesville and Albemarle County suggesting that higher levels of density might help spread diseases like COVID-19 or help them to spread faster. We'll get to that in a moment. Earlier in the show, we heard the latest numbers. Dr. Bonds acknowledges that it's very possible that the pandemic spread wider than the data suggests. I will say that the, the number of individuals who have been infected by this virus is probably higher than this. Early on in this pandemic, we didn't have good testing available, uh, and so we often just had people with classic symptoms stay home uh, and isolate um, 
on a presumptive diagnosis. We've heard a lot in this program about how Virginia is preparing for phase three, which will inevitably end up with more human contact than before, even with physical distancing restrictions in place. Dr. Bond said these steps are necessary. We still do not have a vaccine at this point in time, and we don't have significant herd immunity, that is, enough people in our population who have had it to really protect those who are most vulnerable of having a bad outcome. So there are ways to mitigate the risk um, to any individual. Uh, The easiest way to avoid getting infected is to stay at home, which is how we get to housing. We consider a a risk, a close contact risk, um, someone who has been um, within six feet for 10 to 15 minutes. That's a a close enough distance that you can breathe in some of those contaminated air droplets. And that's a long enough period of time that you could get a sufficient load of virus to become infected. Uh, We consider people who live in the same household as cohorts. So if you live with your family, um, with a roommate, uh, whoever, you all are sharing risk. You're all sharing the same surfaces um, that have been touched by those droplets. You're all sharing the same air. Uh, And so that's a cohort group. um, And that's the highest risk group um, living together. Uh, If you are living in an apartment building, though, it's not your cohort doesn't include the person who's in the next apartment over. So if you're in a townhome or some other housing unit that shares a wall, it's only those individuals that are within your four walls, as it were, that are your risk cohort. People who are next to you or above you or below you have walls separating, and so the risk of aerosolized droplets actually reaching them is pretty low. In our last soundbite from Dr. Bonds, She reminds us that there is one demographic of people who remain severely at risk. From a health point of view, there is very much a huge risk associated with people who are experiencing homelessness. Individuals who don't have a stable housing situation either move from friend to friend to friend, and so they are experiencing lots of different risk situations from that movement, or they're living on the street Um, and they don't have a stable housing situation. We do have um, groups that work to house individuals at night, places like Pacham and the Salvation Army, but again, those are large conjugate housing situations. And what we've seen in this pandemic is lots of risk of infection from people who are sharing those quarters um, and one person becomes infected and then we see lots of people in the situation become infected. That was Dr. Denise Bonds, the director of the Thomas Jefferson Health District, speaking to the Charlottesville Planning Commission on June 9, 2020. And that's it for this installment of the show. We'll be back tomorrow or the next day or maybe the day after that with another program. There is so much information to get out to you each and every day. And I'm trying to do this as fast as I can, when I can. What I'm hoping is that you can share this podcast with people that you think might be interested. They can even go back to the beginning and listen from the start. You're going to hear a history of how we have gotten through this. And at least from my perspective, uh, sitting here in my house with uh, the bell ringing. 
I'm Sean Tubbs. Thank you for listening. And as I said, we'll be back again with another installment of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. Thanks for listening. <laughs>